What does a spiritual person look like? If you were asked to describe a spiritual person, uh, what would your description be like? It can be easy for us to think about a truly spiritual person as someone who is separated from the world. And not just separated from, from the bad things of the world in the way that we as Christians should be separate, but, but someone who somehow is above the, the nitty-gritty of day-to-day life. As someone who doesn't really live in the real world. That's a type of picture that the Christians in Colossae were, were particularly at risk of believing. Their church was being troubled by false teachers who were advocating ascetic practices, worshipping angels and going on in detail about heavenly visions. And the temptation would have been for them to look at that sort of person going on about their visions and talk about angels and saying, well, that's a really spiritual person. But in the section we're looking at today, Paul spells out what a truly spiritual person is. And far from being someone who is somehow aloof from day-to-day realities, we see that a spiritual person is someone whose love for God affects their closest relationships. In other words, it doesn't matter how pious sounding someone is, if they're harsh with their wife, distant with their children, and mistreat those who work with them or for them. Well, then it doesn't really matter how many books they've read or how well respected they are in the church. If they're a different person behind closed doors or in these different spheres of life. Have you ever heard it said that someone is too heavenly minded to be any earthly use? Well, Paul knocks that sort of notion on the head here. He's already said back in verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. But here he shows that truly setting your mind on things that are above will affect things on earth that are as concrete as family life. Um, We're going to look at these things this morning under four headings. Saying firstly that home is where the rubber hits the road. Home is where the rubber hits the road. There are many parts of the Bible that those who aren't Christians think are totally meaningless to them. Last week we were looking at the fact that we are called to be a worshipping people. And that the sort of worship that God requires from us. But those who don't know Jesus aren't too bothered by the question of what sort of worship he requires. We looked earlier on in in this chapter uh, at putting sin to death. But again, if someone isn't a Christian, the idea of putting sin to death isn't something that will cross their mind. But tonight we come to a subject that it's not just Christians who are interested in. If you go into any bookshop, you'll find books on building a strong marriage or bringing up children. They're not written by Christians. They're not aimed at Christians. Uh, Likewise, there are plenty of articles online giving marriage and child rearing tips uh, where God isn't even considered. Because you don't have to be a Christian to look for help with your marriage or want to know how best to bring up your children. And it was actually the same in Paul's day. From the days of Aristotle, who lived 300 years before Paul, the Greek writers had drawn up things that were called household codes. Household codes. Uh, They would tell a man how he should rule over those in his house. 
And that's what these three groups of people were. Wife, children, slaves. They all lived under his roof. And so in one sense what Paul is doing here isn't very surprising. The idea of including instructions about wives, children and slaves. It wasn't anything new. It wasn't something Paul had come up with. It wasn't something new to the Bible. But the content is radically different. Because Paul says here that not only do wives, children and slaves have responsibilities to their husband, father or master. But that he also has responsibilities to them. Now of course in our day we take that for for granted. um, Partly thanks to the Bible's influence on our society. And of course we're not dealing with, with slaves in our day. But, but, you know, in our day, when it comes to, to a wife and children, we, we know that the husband has responsibilities to them. Uh, but, you know, in Paul's day, whether it was Greeks or, or Jews, a man could pretty much do what he liked with them. So while household instructions were nothing new, that the content of Paul's instructions was completely different. And not just different content, but the motivation behind it is different too. Some commentators see this section as a complete change in topic from Paul. uh, That that he's uh, completely changed the conversation. But it's important to see that his instructions here are rooted in all that's gone before. In verse 17, the previous verse, Paul has just said, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that everything obviously includes family life. We're to do family life in the name of the Lord Jesus. But what does that look like in practice? Well, Paul's about to tell us. And the fact that he uses the phrase the Lord in nearly every verse. So this is a distinctively Christian approach to household living. It's home life lived under the Lordship of Christ. So this section about home life isn't just an add-on to Paul's more important spiritual teaching. But instead, if you want to know if you're a truly spiritual person or not, home life is key. Because home is where the rubber hits the road. And we'll now go on and look in detail at the different relationships that Paul deals with here. And if some of these points don't apply directly to you this evening, then I'd encourage you to use them to fuel your prayers as you pray for those who are husbands, wives, parents, children, and so on. Uh, so firstly tonight, home is where the rubber hits the road. Uh, secondly, we're going to look at wives and husbands. And we'll spend a bit more time on this one because it's the most controversial Paul starts with what is easily his most controversial instruction, both for today's society and increasingly for today's church. He says in verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. A few years ago, uh, former Newcastle and Chelsea footballer Gavin Peacock, who is now a pastor in Canada, was accused of sexism for teaching this very thing. He said on Twitter, wives, one of the primary ways you can respect your husband is by gladly submitting to and encouraging his leadership. And those words so clearly flew in the face of 
society's teaching uh, that several mainstream newspapers ran articles on it. And so, as we were thinking of this morning, there's another temptation here to say, well, Paul, he was a creature of his time. You have to understand that he was just following the conventions of his day. But as we've already seen tonight, Paul is in many ways turning the advice of his society on its head. And just so we're not left in doubt, he says at the end of the verse, as is fitting in the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord, Paul isn't taking his, his cues from society here, but from the Lord. So however unpopular it might sound, we can't explain away the fact that Paul says wives are to submit to their husbands. But neither are we to go beyond what Paul says. Notice that he doesn't say that women are to submit to men in general. Paul makes that even clearer in a similar passage in Ephesians 5 where he tells wives to submit to their own husbands, not that they're to submit to someone else's husband's. And of course, if we're talking about it by a single mother, she will be the head of the home. If she has a, a teenage son, it doesn't become his responsibility to take on that role, or conduct family worship and so on, just because he's male. She is still the head of the home. Or to give another example, if, if say, I was going away from home and one of Carla's brothers was staying with us at the time, it wouldn't be his responsibility to to discipline the children or conduct family worship or take any decisions that need made. Because when I was away, Carla would act as head of the home, not him. So it's not about any woman submitting to any man. Nor does biblical submission imply that men are superior to women. One of the biggest problems people have with wives being called to submit is the idea that it's an attack on the equality of men and women. But is submission sexist? Does submission have to imply inequality? Or to put it positively, can two people be equal yet have different rules or functions? Surely the answer is yes. Back in the beginning, God created man, male and female, in his own image. The fact that the word man is used for both suggests male headship. But both men and women are equally made in the image of God. But that equality isn't contradicted by the fact that God has given different roles to men and women. And so in marriage, the husband is called to lovingly lead. And the wife is called to graciously submit to that leadership. Now, of course, this still has limits. The wife isn't to submit if her husband calls her to disobey God. And nor should we we try and take this to absurd limits. You know, say that the, the husband is trying to micromanage the wife's activities, trying to run areas of home life that the wife is clearly more gifted at. God has made us as men and women who complement each other. And that is, we, we make up for each other's deficiencies and weaknesses. So if a husband is hopeless at finances, it would be foolish for him to demand to be in control of managing the money and paying bills and so on. Yes, he has ultimate responsibility for how the couple spend their money. Uh, when, when they talk about 
how much they're going to spend on different things. But, but he, would be, he would be a fool to ignore his, his wife's input and try and do it all himself. Uh, just because he thinks as husband he has to be in charge of absolutely everything. But with all that said in the big decisions of life. When a decision has to be made uh, where none of the options contradict God's law. The buck stops with the husband. After they've both discussed the matter and weighed up all the options, the husband must make the decision. He'd be a fool to not listen carefully to his wife if she has reservations, but in the end, he must take responsibility. And even if the decision he takes is foolish, the wife must submit if it's not against God's word. Someone has said... For Paul, there is no possibility of a married woman's surrender to a heavenly Christ, which is not made visible and actual by some submission to an earthly husband. In other words, it's not enough to say you're living a life of submission to Christ as a wife if it's not made visible in submission to your husband. But both as husbands and wives, we're going to be tempted to fight against this. Have you ever wondered why the wives are called to submit, but the husbands are called to love? Why why aren't the same things used, and and why are these two particular things picked out? It's because these are the two areas where the majority of us will struggle the most. The biggest struggle for wives won't be to love their husbands, but it will be to submit and not try and manipulate him if things aren't heading in a direction that she likes. On the other hand, the biggest struggle for most husbands won't necessarily be to rule, but it will be to do so in a way that's loving. Uh, There are, of course, some some husbands who, who just don't take on leadership responsibility as they should, uh, but there are are plenty of others who do attempt to lead, but do so in a harsh way. And we can say that these are the two areas we'll struggle with most based, not simply on these verses, but also on God's curse uh, pronounced in Genesis 3.16. There the woman is told that her desire would be for her husband. Uh, But I don't think that's in a healthy way. Uh, The same word is used in the next chapter for sin's desire to rule over Cain. And on the other side of the coin, the husband's temptation would be to rule over his wife in a harsh, unloving manner. And so that brings us to verse 18. Husbands there are told to love their wives. But what sort of love is Paul envisaging there? Well, he makes it clear in Ephesians 5 when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands are called to imitate the greatest love this world has ever seen. So this is the kind of self-denying love that would lay down one's life for his bride. And as someone has pointed out, it would be a lot easier to take a bullet for your wife in a moment of heroism than to live out this self-denying love in a thousand unspectacular moments year after year. I think we, we even 
hear that phrase laying down our, our, our life for our wives. And, and yes, we, we think we, we do it in the big moment. But it usually comes down to those thousand unspectacular opportunities each year uh, to deny ourselves for her. The rest of the verse sheds more light on the husband's particular uh, temptation. Uh, It could be translated as it is here, do not be harsh with them. It could also be translated, do not become bitter with them. Uh, Why might a husband be tempted to become bitter against his wife? Well, if she fails to live up to his unrealistic expectations uh, and turns out just to be a real human being, a a real sinful human being just like him. And these are the pressure points. These are the areas where the devil would particularly love to get in. Husbands, if you find yourself becoming bitter against your wife, realize just how much the devil would love that bitterness to grow and become an excuse to seek satisfaction elsewhere. Uh, So so bitterness is a a real uh, temptation to fight against. Uh, And so for both husbands and wives here, the battleground is clearly marked out. These are the areas where Satan will try and bring us into conflict with each other. And of course they both go together. The, the, more, the more that we do our part, the easier it will be for our spouse to do theirs. The more radical the husband's love for his wife, the easier it will be to submit. And the more biblically submissive the wife is, the easier the husband will find it not to become bitter against her. Of course we're called to do the, these duties because that's what God commands. Even if we get nothing in return, we can't blame the other person But in normal circumstances, the more we play our part, the easier it will be for our spouse to play theirs. Now, all that I've said so far has been with the assumption that husband and wife are both believers. But what if one of them isn't? Would that mean, for example, that the wife didn't need to submit? Well, whether the the husband is a Christian or not, the wife isn't to submit if her husband wants her to go against God's word. Uh, for example, if he says that he wants them to have Sunday as a family day rather than go to church. But unless he is telling her to do something that is sinful, she is still to submit, even if he isn't a Christian. Peter says in First Peter 3, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of of their wives. Now that's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy for us to obey these commands if we're married to a Christian, never mind to a non-Christian. In fact, in our own strength, these things are impossible. But look back up to verses 3 and 4. If you're a Christian, then you've died and been raised with Christ. And the self-giving sacrifice of the perfect husband for his bride is what sets you free and gives you the power to obey. So, having looked at husbands and wives, we move thirdly to children and parents in verses 20 and 21. Children and parents. 
Before we jump in to see what God's word has to say to the children, it's worth noticing that there's no gap between verses 19 and 20. Paul doesn't pause to give the parents an opportunity to go and get their children and and bring them in to hear what's going to be said. He doesn't tell the parents that he's got a message for them to pass on to their children once they get home from church. Instead, he assumes that they're going to be there. He assumes that they're going to be in church and that they're going to be listening. Paul here is writing to the church in Colossae, and that includes the children. He addresses the letter in chapter 1 to the saints in Colossae. And in Paul's mind, the children were part of the church just as much as their parents It's one of the reasons why the larger catechism says the visible church is made up not just of those who profess the true religion, but also of their children. Yeah, I think if we were were Baptists and and theologically we limited the church to believers, that might might be different. But, But as Presbyterians, we believe that children are part of the church. So what difference does that make? Well, boys and girls, it means that you are part of the church as well. When the Christians in the New Testament meet together, the children were there. You're part of the church. Yes, uh, someday we we pray that when you grow up, you will uh, do what we we talk about as joining the church and be able to to come and take communion but, but you're still part of the church already. There, there's not adult church and children's church. There's just church. Yes, before you, you come and take communion, you, you must be able to say that you've trusted in Jesus for yourself. Being, being born as part of the church, it doesn't save you. It doesn't make you a Christian. But the fact that you've been baptized means that you're already marked out as different from the world. You're different from the other boys and girls in your school or your nursery. In the same way that someone who's engaged gets a ring, baptism is a sign that our children have been set apart as belonging to God. And so the position of covenant children is the same as those who've been, or it's like those who've been engaged to be, to be married, in that we're not surprised that when people who are engaged to be married, we're not surprised when they actually get married. As if it was something strange or unusual that an engaged couple would get married. Yes, even if they get engaged, they can call the whole thing off. But if they do, then it must be because there has been some major problem. It's not what we expect to happen. So Paul here addresses the children in the church. And by the way, the motivation of children to obey God, the motivation of children brought up in Christian homes to obey God, it's the same as our motivation as adults. It's not obey to try and please God. It's obey because because of Jesus, God is already pleased with you. It's not obey to try and earn God's favour. But Paul here, he does address the children in the church. And what he says to them is very simple. He says, obey. He says, obey. That, by the way, is another pointer to the fact that wives aren't, aren't just to jump when their husbands tell them to. 
wives at the end of the day, after both parties have discussed things and worked things through, they're to submit. The children are called to obey. So boys and girls, are you just to obey if you like the idea of what your parents are telling you to do? Boys and girls, are you just to obey if you want to obey? No. Children, obey your parents in everything. Everything. Now, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that if your mummy or daddy tells you to do something that that God says you're not to do, you must obey God. But that is the only reason for you to disobey them. Apart from that, no matter how much you don't want to do it, you must obey because God tells you to. But do you know what it says next? It says, for this pleases the Lord. Boys and girls, do you know that each time you obey your parents, the Lord Jesus is pleased? What an amazing thought that is. Each time you obey your parents, however small it might be, they ask you to go and and put something in a different room. That pleases the Lord, the God who made us, the God who made the world. That pleases him. And so parents, it's not loving or kind to let your children disobey you. Because their obedience pleases the Lord. In the Bible we see a number of examples of parents overlooking the sin of their children. And those children rarely grow up to know or love the Lord. So children are to obey their parents. Nothing too radical there. But whether that happens or not will have profound implications both for the child and for society. Whether that is enforced or not will have profound implications. Obedience is no small thing. It pleases the Lord. And what is particularly and especially radical here is in verse 21 their parents and particularly fathers are told not to provoke their children that's something you wouldn't have found in any of the secular parenting guides in paul's day but the Bible recognises that not only do children have an obligation to their parents, but parents have an obligation to their children. The word discourage here means become disheartened to the extent of losing motivation. So what ways can parents provoke their children? Well, just to mention a few, one of them is not to show them affection. Not to show them affection. John Newton once said, I know that my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish me to see it. I know that my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish me to see it. And there are plenty of others who can say, I don't really know if my mother or father loved me. It's easy for children to lose heart simply because their parents don't show them much affection. Another way that parents can cause their children to lose heart is by discouragement. Never to praise them. Never to be pleased with what they've done. 
or to take it a stage further by open, constant criticism. And the child is left thinking, well, why bother? It's never going to be enough to please him. Or she'll just give off no matter how hard I try. A final way that parents can provoke their children as they grow a bit older is by overprotection. All rules and no trust. And of course, a father particularly discouraging his children is especially serious because if a child has a bad experience with their earthly father, they're going to struggle to trust a heavenly father. If they've had a father on earth who's never happy with them, who doesn't delight in them simply because they're his son or daughter, they're going to struggle to believe that they have a heavenly father whose love for them isn't based on what they do. So thirdly, children and parents. Fourthly, finally, and more briefly, we have slaves and masters. Of course, if we were just going to apply these last six verses directly to slaves and masters, the way they were applied in the New Testament, there wouldn't be much to say. Slaves were just a part of Paul's life. But times have, have changed and Paul's, Paul's letter to Philemon, a slave owner, is particularly radical in his day when he says that, that Onesimus uh, is, is, not, is no longer just a slave but is his brother. But, but of course our circumstances have changed, they are different. And yet there are still principles here that we can take and apply. And we can apply these principles firstly to the workplace. Because while you may not have a master, you may still have a boss. And here Paul says that Christians should have a totally different approach to work to those around them. And verse 22, it doesn't need much contextualizing for modern day workplaces, does it? Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Your boss, says Paul, is your earthly master. But that implies that you have another master and ultimately you're working for him. So you're not to be the type of employee whose productivity goes up when your boss or supervisor is around because your real boss is Jesus Christ and he always sees what you're doing. And we can't just limit verse 23 to employment because it says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So if you're self-employed, if you're retired, if you're working at home or if you're volunteering somewhere, this verse gives value to what you do. <laughs> the most menial task that you have to do is to be done for Jesus Christ. And that transforms everything doesn't it really we're all in full-time christian work and keep your eyes on the prize paul writes in the first place to slaves who weren't even legally regarded as human who uh, weren't citizens and could never hope to inherit anything but he says in verse 24 you will receive the inheritance as your reward imagine what that would have meant to a slave who, who knew that they could never inherit anything. 
And so as we close tonight, it's clear that being a spiritual person isn't just about how spiritual we sound when we talk about Christian things. It's clear that the gospel isn't something that's just to affect us on Sundays. Instead, every part of our lives is to be lived under the Lordship of Christ. But the passage is realistic as well. It acknowledges that these three areas of life have been affected by mankind's rebellion against God. There's tension between husbands and wives and between parents and children. Our work has been affected in that it's it's no longer always the delight that it was before the fall. So if you're not yet a believer this evening, the Bible says that you're not going to find fulfillment in trying harder in any of these areas. But first you need to put your trust in Jesus Christ because he's the only one who can bring change to your life. And for those of us who are believers, if you've been convicted this evening how you've failed in these areas, well then you too must look to Jesus, the perfect husband and the completely obedient son who completed the work his father gave him to do on the cross. So that we could be forgiven for the times when our spirituality has been more theory than practice. Amen. Well, let's close by singing about the perfect father from Psalm 103. Psalm 103 verses 12 through to 17. Starting at the bottom of page 246. Psalm 103, 12 to 17. Starting page 246, the tune is Belmont 52. Uh, Verse 12, a father would compassion have upon his children dear, just so the Lord compassion has on those who do him fear. And of course, if a father doesn't have compassion on his own children, well, that illustration is broken. And then... Boys and girls, notice especially the the last verse that says the promise is for you as well. If you keep his covenant, uh, your covenant children, how do you keep that covenant? The only way is by trusting in Jesus who has taken the punishment for all our covenant breaking. So 103, 12 to 17, we'll stand and sing praise.